You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, greetings, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense, and I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. Today is a special episode. Of course, you know, I say that about all my shows. I'm so excited. I feel really blessed for the guests I've been able to meet and and bring to you. Uh, Today is going to be no exception. Uh, The topic today is one that comes up frequently in my executive coaching practice. It's the question of imposter syndrome. And my guest is a lady named Barbara Churchill. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Doug. It's great to be with you. Barbara's not a one-trick pony. She's got some other things she's going to help us share and and lean into uh, the whole realm of executive presence and uh, women in leadership and uh, all any one of those could could make up a whole show unto themselves. But uh, like I teased in, I I do want to maybe camp out on this idea of imposter syndrome. But before we do that, Barbara, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur, if I'm going to be honest. Okay, good. (laughs) The corporate space was not a great playground for me. And I I saw a lot of things that we could change and do differently. And what I found was there was not a lot of openness to doing that. And I'm pretty vocal. I'm I'm a pretty direct gal. So I think in my 20s, I probably wasn't as politically correct as I could have been, right? So um, I've built and run three different businesses. I was in direct sales for a while. I was in real estate for a while. And uh, now the coaching, executive coaching, speaking, and I do, uh, I lead women's leadership retreats. So I have, I have that nature of wanting to get out there, serve people in a, you know, maybe in a non-conventional way. And the all roads lead to Rome, all roads for me led to coaching because in every single place that I was in, you know, business that I had, I was always coaching people and I was always asking questions as I'm very curious. So um, that this has just been a great fit for me and uh, love working with the clients that I work with. Just love yeah. them. Well, good for you. And, and that is uh, such a, you know, in demand area. Um, uh, you know, as many people know, my background is not too dissimilar came out of corporate, um, did some consulting work, and then launched into my own entrepreneurial career, uh, basically starting five different businesses, two of which were nonprofits, which was another whole story. But, uh, um, you know, when, when that bug gets in you, it's um, it's an itch that's hard to scratch. And uh, <laughs> you just got to go do it, right? You do. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I, what I love about it is that you can make a lot of mistakes along the way and they're, and they're not life altering, you know, it's just, you learn as you go. And, and I think, you know, if we could bring that into the corporate space, being a little bit more relaxed about failures and not quite so, you know, hypertense about them, uh, I think the workplace would be a whole lot better to work in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, what do you think it was that led you into this particular space you're in now? Particularly, I take it you do a lot of work with with female executives. I do. I work with men as well, and it's interesting because you know it, it's not a gender specific uh, situation. It is a set of uh, thoughts and behaviors, right? It's it's this identifiable pattern. That's what imposter syndrome is. So, 
uh, men and women deal with it very differently. But I, you know, being a woman and I understand how I dealt with it because, you know, it's always like we do the things that we, we teach the things that we most need to learn. Right. So uh, working with females and in the leadership area, you know, I just found so many of them that were capable and bright and, and, you know, so, so great at their jobs and they couldn't see it. And I had a lot of that in my personal life. You know, there's self-doubt that goes with it, you know, all of those things. And, and it holds you back. You think you have to continue to get this education or this certification, or, you know, maybe when I do this, then, and we're playing small. So it really bothered me that particularly women in leadership, because it is still very male dominated. Um, and I wanted to give women a leg up listen, you are amazing. You just have to own that because not doing it isn't doing you any good and it's not doing the rest of the world any good. We've got to get out there. Yeah. You mentioned uh, men and uh, women dealing with the imposter syndrome differently. Can you elaborate on that? Well, it's interesting because the way society has has raised and the expectations of society, men have a lot of pressure to perform, to be the breadwinner, to be the leader, to get out there and, and make things happen. Women uh, are trained to be the nurturers and it's okay if you have a job, but let's just not brag about that. You know, look at, look at sports. Every Every time somebody makes a touchdown or makes a great pass or tackles or somebody, you know, hits a home run or whatever, everybody is just freaking out. And, and it's all this great stuff. Men are raised in this. Celebrate the stuff that you do well. Women are told, be quiet. Don't bring. Mm. It's not ladylike. It's not feminine. <clears throat> it's not whatever. So starting with that, it's so interesting because you know, we, we don't have that innate or we haven't been raised that way to just be very forthright and, and uh, you know, yeah, I'm really good at this or yeah, I'm really good at that. Um, the other thing is men deal with it a little bit differently in that if there's something that, um, it, you know, if there's a promotion or something going on and a guy goes for it, then even if he only has three or four of the qualifications, he thinks, yep, I'm going to have it. I'm going to, I'm going for this and it'll be great. If a woman goes for it, she has nine out of 10 qualifications and she'll hold herself back and get that 10th so that she's ready the next time. Mm -hmm. There's also a difference um, in how they address it. Women are much more likely to talk about it than men are. Because still in this day and age, and it just floors me, and I have two boys and a girl, so um, I watch for this in them, but men are still taught that it's not okay to show their feelings, you know, um, or talk about something that someone else may deem as a quote unquote weakness, which I don't believe at all. So they are more likely to overwork or drink or uh, try to avoid that feeling than women are. It's fascinating stuff. Let me ask you this. Once upon a time, in, in while I was still in the consulting realm, I had a huge engagement, and there was a female executive I was working with 
And the most senior person on the client side happened to be female, and it was a one of the most bizarre arrangements I've ever had the experience of working with. And I was leaving a meeting one time and I said to my colleague, the female, I said, I'm really, I'm missing something here. There's this behavior I'm getting from my client just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And my female colleague said, Doug, you don't get it. Women executives have this compelling fear of failing. Yeah is huge huge it's a crippling fear almost at sometimes and she said that's what you're dealing with and i thought about it and then the next time i had a chance <clears throat> we had had a again a fairly challenging meeting and when it was over i was leaving with this the client and I said to her, I said, I, I just said I didn't challenge her a question. I'd made a statement. I said, you're not going to fail on this project. That's what you hired me for. We are not going to fail. We're, we're, we're going to win the day. You know, yeah. you, you, you need to not worry about that. And she kind of stopped and she said, you think I'm afraid? And I said, well, to be honest, yes, I do. I said, every question, every statement has a tone of fear in it. And I said, uh, you don't need to do that. I'll, I'll, that's what you hired me to do. And my yeah. people, my team that I brought with me, that's what we're here for is to protect you from that failure. You know, we are your army. We are your, you know, your ring of defense. Yeah. And I said, you, yeah. you're not going to fail. We're, we're going to win. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because <clears throat> I think it was KPMG did a study and I think they said 81% of women believe that they put more pressure on themselves not to fail than men do. And think about it for a minute. Men are used to being in leadership roles. You know, I mean, that's just the way it has gone for, for centuries. Women feel the higher up they go, because there's still only 6% of CEOs have right. female right. CEOs, right? Uh, you know, the higher up they go, it, it's like I'm carrying my sisters with me. There's a lot riding on this. Uh, I have a client right now who uh, works in manufacturing and um, inherited a mess of a department. And she's at the senior executive level. And there, you know, everyone is looking to her to be the savior. You know, that's a lot of plus her own pressure. So there's a lot of pressure that women put on themselves, mm -hmm. you know, not to fail. Well, and, and back to the theme of imposter syndrome, I, uh, I had a, a client, a, a male client, um, a couple of years ago, and he had been hired into a position at, at an organization with the expressed specific intent of being the heir apparent to the senior leader who was destined to retire in two years. And it was fully disclosed. Everybody in the universe knew that was the play. Uh, this guy got in the role and was this deputy or senior assistant or whatever you wanted to call him. So kind of in waiting, in training for two years, did a great job by all accounts. Uh, but then the day came when the elder checked out, signed off, retired, rode off into the sunset. And my client became the head and 
the the very next call I had with him, he said, Doug, we haven't talked about this. He said, but I've anticipated and I've been afraid and worried about having an imposter syndrome. And now that I'm here, I do. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, you have been at this guy's right hand for two years. I said, is there something you haven't told me about how that two years has gone? I said, have, have there been landmines and goof ups and mistakes? And he said, no, no, we crushed it. Our numbers got better year yeah. over year, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I said, then what do you think is at the root of this, um, you know, this, this concern you've got? And he, his first answer was, he said, I'm not that guy. Yeah. And I said, okay, good for you, you know, celebrate that. That's yeah. a good thing. And uh, yeah. so anyway, it, it, uh, my point in bringing it up, and um, it's, it, I think it hits anybody, you know, you, and you might be surprised at when it rises up and bites you, you know, and it, it may be a function of you don't have it until you get in the seat of authority. Well, that's the thing, you know, as <clears throat> we move up. We go from director to VP and VP to SVP and EVP and then up to the C-suite and all of that. At each rung, it comes roaring back in saying, wait a second, don't even think about everything that you've already done because that doesn't count anymore. <laughs> yeah. Now you have this and you're no way qualified for that. It's that self-concept that we, we aren't solid in. Uh, and men in particular define themselves by the job that they do and how well they do it. Right. That's why when they right. retire, it's like they're lost. They don't you know. Now what do I do? Right. 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 Um, so it's so important to just understand that the, the higher up you go, you will have these feelings. It doesn't mean that they're true. You know, I tell my clients all the time, just because you think something doesn't make it true. It's just a thought that you have in your head and you get to choose whether or not it's high value or low value and whether you want to continue with it or not. What have you found in your work? Is there a correlation between suffering the imposter syndrome and having another collection of limiting beliefs, those proverbial tapes that play in your head? I mean, well, is that? Yeah, you know, imposter syndrome really uses that inner critical voice that we all have and really hones in on that. And it's like a special version. <laughs> So um, everyone has a critical voice. It's it was there since the time you know the humans came to be, and its sole purpose is to keep us safe. Right in the caveman days, we went out, we were in heightened alert. Our brains will will always notice negative things more than positive things because that's what kept us safe. Whoops, there's a threat. Go back in the cave. That's using the primitive brain, the you know the part of your brain in the back lower base of your of your head, right? What we want to do is shift that up to the prefrontal cortex, and we want to make decisions from there. Because when we're making decisions from that primitive brain, it's all about fear and lack, and how do I stay safe? So when imposter syndrome comes up, it's just another version of that critical voice. It's discounting all your achievements. You don't have the self-concept of someone who has achieved this position because of the work that you and your team have done. You have, you don't really see it clearly. You'll, you'll certainly give accolades to your team or say that you were just in the right place at the right time and call yourself lucky and, you know, all of those things. 
Um, but you have to start to notice when that negative voice starts coming in and say, hey, you know what? Hang on a second. We start to become an observer of our thoughts rather than just having them run, you know, like the bottom of a newscast. You know, we just have that. And if you notice the bottom of a newscast, that reel that just keeps going, it repeats. Oh, yeah. It's the same stuff, right? We're just thinking the same stuff all the time. Our brains aren't particularly clever when it comes to negativity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I've done a lot of work with my own clients about that idea of let's identify some of those negative stories you're telling yourself. And, and, you know, sadly, part of that gets programmed at early ages. Maybe it's a ill-intended school teacher or sports coach or somebody of in a position of significance in your life that instilled in you, you know, you're not smart enough, you're not fast enough, you're not pretty enough, you're overweight, whatever, uh, all those things that are horribly judgmental and usually wrong, by the way. Um, <clears throat> yet we carry them way deep into our adult life. And oh, yeah. Like, yeah, see, they were right. You know, totally. you know they were right. Totally. I had an art teacher. I'll never forget. I had an art teacher who told me, you know, and I'm sorry, to this day, I draw stick people. Douglas, just, that's just how I am. I am not, I can see it in my brain, but coming out of pencil, it's the whole, whole different thing, right? But she told me sketch after sketch after sketch, you know, my sketch pad would always have a lot of red ink on it. <laughs> and she told me I wasn't creative. Oh, and that, and that was eighth grade. And in that same year, you know, what a school I went to. But in that same year, my English teacher told me I wasn't a good writer. So here I had two authorities who I looked at as, well, they should know, right? They're experts in their field. I was going to be an elementary school teacher. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, if you're going to do that, you have to be creative. And I was just told that I'm not a good writer and I'm not creative. So I better ditch that and figure something else out. Yeah. Right. At so, and it stayed with me for decades. And I believed that because their voices were still in my head until one day I just was like, okay, if art is the only outlet for creativity, if drawing, then no, I am not creative. But is that really the only way to be creative? And of course, the answer is no. Yeah. Well, and as some of my listeners have heard before, I tell the story. I had a college professor. Actually, I was in my graduate program trying to get my MBA. And at, at the school I went to, we had to write a paper. We had to do a comprehensive exam. And we had to sit for orals, all three. And during the orals, this one professor on the panel was just, he was horrible. I could tell he and I did not connect from, you know, the very first moment. Anyway, long story short, he told me, he said, I'm, I'm going to vote to confer your decree, but you have to make me a lifelong promise. I thought, okay, what? He said, I am not convinced you understand the core principles of finance. I'm going to ask you to pledge that you'll never work in the U.S. banking system. I said, what? And not that I'd had a vision on that at the time, but I, I thought it was kind of random. And I said, U.S. banking system. Uh, and I, at the time, I was I was a military officer, and I still had a military commitment. And I thought, okay, whatever. Yes, I agree. I'm, I'm good. Sign me up. So got my MBA. And first job I took out of the Army was working for a bank. And uh, <laughs> Uh, that turned into a near 30-year career in financial services. And ultimately, the pinnacle of all that is I actually worked for the FDIC for a little while. 
Oh, my and stars. I, 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 as I was doing all that, I was just chuckling. I, I said, I wish I could find that guy and show him, you know. And, you know what? Wouldn't it have been great <clears throat> to be able to just send him a note with a picture, FDIC, hi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what a demeaning, useless thing to tell someone. Oh, it was. And, and, and it was, by the way, it was whatever he thought I lacked was never a, an issue in, in what unfolded as my career. Yeah. Because and thank God you didn't listen to him because he was an authority in that. And you could have gone the other way. Supposedly, you went, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what? Well, you part of the way I chalked that off is, you know, the old joke about college professors, you know, those who can do and those who can't teach. Um, you know, so <laughs> it's like, aha. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So um, anyway, I digress. But um, what... What is it you help people understand to kind of break through that that fear or unknown of the imposter syndrome? Where, where do you start your work with trying to help somebody through that? Well, I really, uh, you know, I listen to what we, we set goals at the beginning, but, you know, of course, these are high achieving people. So they always want to set, you know, 17 goals at the beginning of an engagement. It's like, no, you know what? You're limited to three. And they yep. just, what? Yep. I do the same thing. But I, I've, the first few sessions, I'm really listening to what they say and getting a pattern of how they think. And do they have a clear self-concept? Do they know who they are? Are they accepting of all their gifts and talents? You know, um, do they look to other people? Are they, I have, uh, four concepts that I, that I, uh, I had a, created a concept called the four derailers because, in imposter syndrome, we get derailed by certain things, and it's very, very common. So perfectionism, I watch for that. Is it good enough? Are they constantly tweaking? Are they holding their team back? Are they setting expectations so high that no one can achieve them? Um, we talk about pleasing, people pleasing. Are you running around asking 14 people their opinions before you make a decision? That is not what great leaders do right? They certainly may get input, but it isn't dependent on what everybody else, you don't need consensus. Sometimes we just got to go. Um, procrastination is a big one. You know, are you putting off these projects because your brain is telling you, you don't know what to do when clearly you do. And then at the end, you pull it out, you do it, you do amazing work. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I've never seen anybody do that much in such a short period of time. This is amazing. And instead of feeling really good about it, you're like, shoot, I'm going to have to do this again tomorrow. Yeah. So it isn't that you work well under pressure, although your brain may tell you that, which is not a useful thing. And then uh, the last one is prover. Are you overworking? Are you researching everything? Are you gathering all these facts? just to prove that you belong in this chair. Yeah. So yeah. those behaviors come up. So I watch for those kinds of things. And, and then we, we really do start with the basics of, I do a lot with mindset. So we really do start with the basics of it. We're going to start to notice these patterns of thinking, uh, what you're doing, what are your go-to thoughts that hold you back that aren't useful. We really work on not judging what you're thinking or how you're thinking. It's just, listen, this has been programmed for a really long time. This right. comes from childhood, <clears throat> from parenting, from teachers, from society, from all areas. And 
people are always amazed that they really do have a choice on what they think. But I always tell my clients, we were really going to slow you down so that we can then speed up. Yeah. I, like I want that. you to listen. I want you to, you know, really notice what's happening between your ears. Yeah. Very good. Well, I'll tell you what, Barbara, we're going to take a short commercial break. I, I, I love what you said there. When we come back from the break, I want, I want to dig into that a little bit further. So folks, hang with us. We're going to be right back. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. All right, everyone, we're back. You are listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and my guest today is Barbara Churchill. We are talking about, our central theme anyway, is the elusive and ugly imposter syndrome. We've uh, talked a lot about that, and right before the break, we were talking about four different derailers that Barbara's identified, and one of those was procrastination and, uh, and perfectionism. And I think perfectionism is where we're going to start uh, so, Barbara, talk, talk a little bit more about your observations in that area. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I, I full disclosure, I am a recovering perfectionist. OK, so I, it's not like I'm sitting here, you know, preaching. I know what this is about. Perfectionism. First, I just want to say it really doesn't exist in human beings. If you think about it, we are all human. We have flaws perfectionism doesn't exist in humans. It exists in engineering and in math and in science. And thank God, because we don't, you know, we don't want to build airplanes and have parts left over, <laughs> you know? So those are places that, that it is useful. And we wear perfection, particularly imposter syndrome sufferers, wear perfection as a badge of honor, as in like, you know what? I have very high standards. That's what your brain will tell you. I have very high standards. And that's not what it is. You are raising the bar to an impossible level. So you set yourself up not to hit it because there's just no way when you're going for 100% perfection, there's no way you're going to hit that. And then we expect our teams to do that as well. And so it makes for a really un uncomfortable and not fun work environment. So what I encourage my clients to do is to start to strive for excellence. Because think about just the difference. When you think of anything that's perfect, what does that feel like in your body? You know, do you get stressed? It has to be perfect. What does your brain say about perfectionism? Perfect. Perfection is like, I can't fail. You know, there's very black and white polarizing thinking around perfectionism, but excellence, you know, we're striving for excellence. That has a completely different feel to it. It feels attainable and achievable. You know, so we, I get nitpicky about words, but it's because perfection is so loaded for so many people and it holds you back. It's not about getting the best workout. Uh, actually, it, it is about hiding. You know, I'm just, it's not quite ready yet. It's not quite, I'm just going to continue to, and it's like, no, push it out to the world. Yeah. 
Two thoughts on that. One, one of my large global brands I was dealing with a couple of years ago, they had a culture uh, that they called the 100% culture. And the idea was when they were uh, presented what seemed like a business opportunity, uh, whether it was a shift in the market or an acquisition or a trade or something like that, <clears throat> they would go through their decision-making process, and in very short time, they could have 70 or 80% of the answers they wanted. Mm -hmm. But the 20 to 30% that was missing or lacking at the moment was committed to some very rigorous, often very labor-intensive effort to find the answer to that 20, 30% difference, that delta. Well, in hindsight, what they discovered was nine times out of 10, the opportunity was gone by the time they did all that. So they never acted on the juicy stuff that could have propelled them to a much higher level. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> they're, they're a large, long-standing global brand, and I'm not going to drop names, but right. they, when, when the, um, <clears throat> they had a new chairman and CEO that came in and he apparently had had a career-long, uh, what do you call it, burr about that idea. And he said he, he felt they missed too many opportunities by wanting to have that perfect 100% answer. Yeah. So he tried to launch a culture change that allowed for the 70-80 rule. Yeah. If, if you've got 70 or 80% of the answer and we're not going to get you know, too analytical about the Delta there. Right. But if you're at that level and if you've got a clear green light or no go, you know, make, call the shot, do it. And by the way, if you miss, and if you're in fact wrong, we're going to say no harm, no foul. Yes. We, we're, we're going to, we're going to take our lumps and move on. Yeah. But, because when you do it that way, <clears throat> it allows people to take the pressure off when you're feeling the pressure to be perfect, that's not a great space for innovation. No. Right? And and it was a much harder cultural change to implement than you might suspect because there were way too many stories where people said, oh, no, no, once upon a time, I submitted an 80 and I got rated as a bad performer because mine was 80, not 100. Yeah. And that's how my rating came back to me. And in their culture, they had a forced rank rating system, which was archaic to yeah. say the least. Yeah. But if if a manager had to differentiate between you that did the 80 and somebody else that did the 100, they always went for the hundreds to get the higher ranking. Sure. And I mean, that meant real dollars in the paycheck yeah. and in the retirement fund. So there was a real negative enforcement bias toward that. And so when the new CEO said, we're going to allow that, everybody said, no, time out. You know, what is my rating really going to say Yeah. if I do that? And yeah, it's a lot of layers. They, um, they really struggled with making that happen. Yeah, especially in a large company, when you're trying to make a culture shift like that, that's deeply ingrained. It takes a lot of effort and patience to do that. I work with a manufacturing company right now, and their motto is, we don't fail. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay, so yeah. we're just going to work one leader at a time. <laughs> and then their little subculture, their direct reports that, you know, they'll create 
the difference, they'll create the excellence, not perfection. And hopefully over time, right, it spreads into the into well, now the other thing I, I call it the uh, ugly twin of, of perfectionism and that's that idea of procrastination and inevitably when I have a client who confesses a struggle with procrastination what we ultimately uncover it it's manifested by this sense of procrastination always missing the deadline and everything but it's really driven by perfectionism yeah I want to have it done perfectly. So I will research or, you know, do all the things, gather all the information or uh, this is a project I'm not really sure how to do perfectly. So I'm just going to set it aside and I'll do something else and I'll make sure that I get it done. Right. And then all of a sudden the deadline creeps in and it's like, oh, you know, right. and here we are, we're off to the races. It's all about hiding. It's all about, it boils down to, I don't think my work is good enough. I don't know enough. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to fail. So I'm just going to hide back here. You know, it's like the little kids almost, you know, when they go like this, yeah. if I can't see you, you can't see me. Yeah. Right. But it's on, it's on a much higher level, but it, the result is the same, you know, right. we have to do. So I, in terms of procrastination, I let my clients know, you know what, when you get a project, if it's three months, you're going to do 80% of it in the first six weeks. You're just going to go because when you take that procrastination mask off and you just do what you know first, let's just do a step here, a step there. Just had a client today. I'm talking to her about it. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I said, what does it do? Friday. Okay. If you did know what to say, or here's the other thing, your self-concept. All right. You know who you are. The person that knows how to do this, what would they do next? And then all of a sudden it comes in when we take away all that fear and we just let them talk all of a sudden they know, well, she's, she came up with four different things to do. I said, okay, well, let's run with those. We make yeah. it harder. Our brains want to make it, harder, <clears throat> but it's all about that fear of being seen, the fear of failing. We, we aren't going to put something out that's good enough or perfect. And I love the old saying that perfect is the enemy of good, yeah. but you can speak it, but it's one of those things that's easier said than done. Yeah. And yeah. if if you're really hardwired for that notion of perfectionism, um, and and whether that came from, you know, mom and dad cracking the whip that your grades weren't good enough in school yeah. and you had to do more and be more, or, you know, the poor guy that wasn't running fast enough on the track team or, you know, wasn't making the varsity team in football or baseball, all those pressures uh, yeah. on them, I think, fuel that fire that, and it, and it goes back to those re limiting beliefs that say, you know, I'm not fast enough, I'm not strong enough. And maybe those words were never spoken to him, but the message yeah. around all that yeah. came down to that conclusion. Yeah. It, and, and that's where we get to take charge of what we're thinking. We get to take charge of the stories that we tell ourselves and decide which ones are useful to us and which ones don't fit anymore. There's a lot of beliefs that we have that aren't even ours. You know, up there, Uncle Joe said this to you and, you know, told you this was the truth. And you're like, you know what? I don't even buy into that. 
but it's still hanging around. So we have to clean that out a little bit. It's like going through old files, you know, do I still need, you know, we only keep seven years of taxes, right? right. We should only keep seven years of beliefs. Let's just, we can just got to, you know, clean out all that old stuff and get rid of it and replace that with stuff that's useful. Well, that's a great segue into a thought I've got that there's another challenge that I want to ask you about. Um, I have a, a bit of a, a story that um, what I tell a lot of my leaders is that if they will stop for a minute and think back on their progression, their career path, inevitably what happened was, you know, they got hired in and they were some kind of individual contributor in their work. And then all of a sudden, one day, the boss came around and said, we need a supervisor and we think you're our person. We're going to promote you to supervisor. You're going to be the team leader here. And you go, oh, yippee, you know, more money, more opportunity, yada, yada. So you get thrown into that. You don't necessarily have any training or preparation. So you, you do this self-assessment and you start figuring things out. And part of what you figure out is, well, I still have to do a little bit of my old job, plus worry about these other people. So I'm just going to work a little harder. And all of a sudden that gets honored by what? Another promotion. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that you, you create this hamster wheel process of elevating up the company. And then one day it happens along that, along about that director VP mode, the, the jungle drums in the company are saying, we want more strategy. We want more relationship building. We want more collaboration. And none of that is technical. None of that is that sole contributor mindset. Mm -hmm. And so you're thrust into this rub of friction, you know, rock in a hard place kind of thing. Because in your mind, you're saying, gosh, for the last 15 years, I've been promoted and recognized for all this technical execution. Right. Now they're telling me what, what do yeah. they want me to do? How do I do this? Now we want so, you to have a vision. <laughs> so that can't help but create this imposter syndrome. It's, it's like all of a sudden the goalposts got moved yeah. and I'm not clear on what the new standard is. Well, yeah. And particularly when we get rewarded for that, that perfectionism and that prover derailer that I talk about, you know, if you're overworking and you get rewarded for that, then that just ingrains that even further. But I think, you know, the things that I talk to organizations about is uh, whenever I have an engagement, I'm always talking to them about, listen, who are you thinking is going to come up? Who's your next up and coming director? Who's your next up and coming VP, senior VP, CEO, whatever. Let's work with them now because it's a completely different animal. You're not gonna be executing as much. You're going to be leading, you're going to be mentoring, you're gonna be strategizing, having a vision, looking you know, a year, five, 10 out. That's a completely different set of skills, right? right. It always right. fascinates me in sales when they take the best of the best salesperson and make them a manager. And then they wonder, why this person, you know, isn't doing a good job. Well, they're completely different skill sets. Right. You know? Right. Uh, sales is a great example of that because that's exactly what inevitably happens. The assumption is, well, I'll take my best producer and make them the supervisor or manager so, so that they can train everybody else to do what they did. It never happens. No, there's time happens. for that. They're too busy putting out everybody's fires and, you know, trying, I mean, trying to manage people. That's a whole different thing than leading people, right? 
Yeah, we could have we could have like a we could have our own show talking about that. <laughs> oh yeah, another another whole story. Well, and I tell people it, it's definitely different when you're sitting across the table and um, you see all these smiley faces looking at you, and you're the boss now, and all of a sudden it's you know they're looking to you for answers. In fact, I'll digress a minute. I, I, there was a trick I did once upon a time in my banking days. I was a department head and I had, I don't know, 300 people or something like that. And one particular employee was really giving us all trouble. And he came into my office one day to talk about it. And he was spilling all his concerns. And I finally said, I got up out of my chair and I said, I said, get up and go sit over there. And I pointed at my chair and he thought, what? I said, just humor me here. Go, go sit in that chair over there and let me sit here. And he sat down and I said, now let me ask you, do things look any different? <laughs> and he thought a minute and he goes, to be honest, as a matter of fact, they do. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I see, and I told him, I said, well, what I'm hearing is you don't get what I'm trying to tell you we're up against. I, I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm just telling you we have other factors that are impacting our situation here. And what you're asking to be done simply can't be done. And we've tried to explain that to you in as best way possible. And yet you keep arguing the fact. Right, right. Yeah, it's very easy to sit in the cheap seats, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what did Brene Brown say? You know, it's the, uh, you got to be in the arena for your, for your, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but you got to be in the arena for your opinion to count. Yeah. 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 You got to be out on the pool, out on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to speak. Wow. Well, Barbara, I think this has been wonderful, and thank you so much for sitting in and kind of sharing all this. Tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're uh, interested in learning more. Absolutely. Uh, my website is barbarachurchill.com. I'm sure that'll be in the show notes. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Barbara Churchill. Very good. Well, and you are correct. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And I always like to remind everybody that if you're listening on your favorite streaming channel, we do have a video of this episode over on YouTube, also channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there, take, take a gander, subscribe, and leave us uh, a comment. We'd love to get your feedback. Barbara, again, this has been great. Thank you so much for sitting in. Oh, thank you, Doug. It was my pleasure. All right, folks, we're going to let you go. And uh, I really want to express my appreciation for you listening in, spending some minutes in your uh, precious day. And uh, I know your time is limited, and I really do appreciate your uh, following and participating. So um, go out there and have, have a great day and make it a good one. We'll see you again soon. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.